You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another fabulous episode of Dear Multi-Hyphenate. I am your host, Michael Kushner, and I'm so excited to bring you this episode featuring my guest, Alex Donnelly. It is a great episode. We talk about your inner child, creating positive work experiences, being specific with your work, how to start producing, and companies that he's founded and worked for, like Fortress Productions and Production Resource Group. Um... I am so glad that you're joining and listening, and please, 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 please rate, comment, subscribe, do all that good stuff. I could use some of your positive words of love on Apple Podcasts. Um, Those really help. So please, if you feel like doing a mitzvah today, it's easy, it's breezy, and it's very helpful. Anyway, (laughs) um... I've been really busy lately, knock on wood, I'm always so grateful for the work, uh, you know, in the headshot studio, and um, and I'm currently running a sale, $100 off, anyone that books, um, I am now making it official that college students will always get, you know, throughout the years, $150 off um, if they show proof of, uh, you know, that they're in college, and uh, you get $200 off if you book with a friend, you don't have to shoot on the same day, but book with a friend. And um, I also want to say that I stand in solidarity with uh, the WGA and SAG-AFTRA. Um, fully support and, you know, livable wages would be great. <laughs> and pay your, pay your artists. And even when you're producing your own work, like in a smaller setting, as this multi-hyphenates do, make sure the artists that you are paying, that you are hiring get paid. Please, it is, we, we all deserve to get paid and compensated for what we do. Um, but I just came back from a trip, uh, visiting Ithaca College. It was my 10-year anniversary from graduation. Oh, my God. I'm old. Um, but it was so great to see some, uh, of my incredible, incredible, uh, oh, that's my, that's my puppy sandwich. Say hi, sandwich. Thank you. Um, all right, sandwich daddy's working. He, he's just I have to remember that he's protecting me right he hears someone in the hallway and he's protecting me so I have to say thank you sandwich thank you so much um but my professor Paula Murray Cole also came out with a book with Rutledge Publishing where my book How to Be a Multi-Hyphenate in the Theater Business is also published so get our books there's also a mid-year sale happening on Rutledge Publishing right now where you buy one get 20% off or buy two or more and get 25% off 
you obviously know my book, but um, her book is Inside the Performance Workshop, a source book for Rasa boxes and other exercises. She is brilliant. Um, I highly recommend that box, uh, that book featuring Rasa boxes, which is an incredible um, tool that she teaches about becoming an athlete of the emotions. She is absolutely brilliant. Um, what else do I got on my list of things to talk about? Leave a review. Uh, got buy the books. Um, headshot uh, uh, sale. Um, there's some more important things like you know there's some shows that are closing which you need to see like Life of Pi and Camelot. Also, the, those two shows close on July 23rd. They are stunning and brilliant, and I got to photograph backstage. So check those photos out on the Dressing Room Project Instagram at the Dressing Room Project or on my personal Instagram at the Michael Kushner. Um, and please follow. You know, do all that good stuff with all of my accounts at Dear Multi Hyphenate. Um, uh, so please see those shows and, uh, we got to talk about something and that is, you know, we've had some discussions on social media. I'm sure you've seen about Jewish representation. Um, why Jewish representation is important is because like Sarah Silverman says, we are a race, a ethnicity and a religion all wrapped up in one we are we are a very unique experience for that and you know uh jews are aware of their privilege we are we talk about it all the time our goal is actually not for jewish people to for for only jewish people to play jewish people we're not looking for that but what we are looking for is correct representation so not stereotypes and and there's a show that just had announced casting where the leading lady who is a Jewish woman and has stereotypically Jewish features and speaks Yiddish and whatever um, is going to be played by a non-Jewish person. And, uh, you know, it's not really great for me and for a lot of people. Um, there are numbers in this show where if anyone other than someone who identifies as Jewish is appropriation and it's... Uh, takes a lot to offend me it's just it, it's really it offends other people it's just really icky to me it's like we could we could we could figure out other ways to tell this story and maybe that means by hiring someone who is actually jewish um regardless you know it's more than just representation it's more than that when i posted on facebook and instagram about you know my my qualms about this i was met with outwardly blatant anti-semitism not like oh i just have like there was one one friend of mine that had a very had a beautifully worded question and i was like ah oh, love love this engagement and everyone can learn and but then one person compared jewish representation to animal representation and said basically if jews have to play jews then do animals have to play animals where's the line okay great and um then someone literally was like, actors should play anything. Actors are actors, and I don't understand like why you're so sensitive about this. Okay, cool. And then um, RFK Jr., who is a Democratic nominee, right, Sandwich? Um, a Demo Yeah, he's pissed too. Uh, a Democratic nominee, he, um, he said that COVID specifically like targeted white people and jews were immune um and that furthers the 
you know, we again, Jewish people are aware of their privilege, but that like, you know, further says like Jews are white until they're not, until we have a reason to other them. And we feel this deeply, you know, uh, it's just wild. And um, I think we could all do better. And not seeing a lot of people be outraged about this was hurtful. And, you know, we understand that there's a strike happening and we need to devote our attention to that. But we can also devote our attention to two things at once, more than two things at once. And uh, a lot of people, a lot of my friends have actually come out with some interesting takes. And when confronted and they realize that, you know, oh, okay, maybe that wasn't the the most educated or correct thing to say there's no there's been no apology um so if you find yourself maybe it was one of those people i forgive you you know we're not here to we're not here to fight fire with fire we just want people to understand and 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 look for support um so anyway sending love to everyone discovering more about themselves and i'm discovering more about my jewish identity anyway there's a lot more of that. If you have any questions, comments, concerns with that, you can drop me a message on Instagram at the Michael Kushner or at your multi hyphenate, and let's have a conversation about it. Anyway, moving on. Can't wait for you to listen to this episode featuring Alex Donnelly. Alex joined Production Resource Group, or PRG, in early 2018 to help expand PRG's international presence in TV and film before transitioning to PRG's Broadway division in 2020, where he manages the the lighting, audio, and video teams from Secaucus, New York. Under Alex's lead, PRG's brilliant team of creative visionaries and technologists are truly the masterminds behind the immersive visual experiences that transport Broadway's audiences to new worlds. Their technological developments have also helped to revolutionize theatrical productions, continuing to create an even more engaging experience at each show, including shows such as Phantom of the Opera, Some Like It Hot, Lion King, and Juliet, Take Me Out, and many more. Alex also owns and manages Fortress Productions, a live events and theatrical production company, and was founding executive director of the Corkscrew Theater Festival, a multi-venue theatrical nonprofit in New York City. Enjoy the episode. Alex Donnelly, how are you? I'm doing well, Michael. How are you? Oh, you know, just taking it day by day. It's Friday. We're recording on a Friday. So that's, you know, it, 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 we love Fridays. Love Fridays. It means the week's almost over. I know, but we're in the theater, so we don't really have weekends. You know, it's, it, it, I would say it's things slow down on the weekend, but it, they don't end. I find especially in March and April, as all the shows are opening on Broadway and off Broadway, when you have when you're in the theater, you're seeing a lot of shows. Not only do you not get a weekend, it, you know, it doesn't become a seven day week. It becomes like a 13 day week because yeah. you just you just kind of keep going. And so especially if you've had a weekend where you've had shows or rehearsals or anything by by that second Friday, you're beat. <laughs> It is so true. I, you know, what, what I try to do is, um, I don't have any, uh, photo clients on Fridays. I try to, uh, get a lot of my, my computer work done. That's like, you know, something big as a multi-hyphenate for me is that I really like to have as much as I can, like a really consistent workflow, which is near impossible in the theater, because as you know, you could be invited to an opening night, you know, 30 minutes before the curtain where you can, uh, you have to have an, you have an audition first thing in the morning where, you know, there's no real consistency in the theater and we just have to be okay with that. 
Um, but Fridays, I don't photograph on Fridays. I get edits done. You know, I do my retouches on Friday. I teach at NYU on Fridays. Um, but right now I'm, I'm not back in the classroom yet. So I'm able to take it really slow and, and, and do a nice ease into the weekend. And I feel like as theater artists, we are allowed to implement as many, you know, little goodies like that as like what what for you is in your schedule that you're like I look forward to this every week this is something consistent and this keeps me grounded in the craziness of what we do um I I should flag that I don't know that it's that consistent so I don't want to <laughs> paint a picture of like better mental health practices than uh-huh. anyone else um I really love having the better part of a Saturday afternoon to myself and truly the thing I love doing. And I know this is so nerdy and silly, but I love sitting and going through like every single one of my expenses or like receipts, or I don't know. I just, I like, I'm a big, my ADHD brain works in a way that I need to like organize everything before I can get anything else done. So it's probably not the, the, the best thing, but I, I could spend five hours just like categorizing different things that I've been doing and planning for vacations and all that. And I find if I don't have a a full Saturday afternoon to devote to it, it just doesn't really happen. Like I, it's not something I can do in like 15 minute increments. I kind of have to go and say, okay, today I'm going to like sit by myself, no distractions and do all my expenses from this month or whatever the case may be. So you're a numbers guy. It, yeah, of a recovering banker, in fact. So you did not go to school for theater, correct? Not for theater, no. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to school. I don't know if I really knew what I was going to do when I entered school somewhat quickly. That you know, In my freshman or sophomore year, I started pursuing finance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ended up getting one of those internships that kind of turns into a job uh, at Bank of America uh, my junior year. But the whole time I was there, I was in the performing arts. I started in uh, the wind ensemble, eventually became the president of that, started playing in the pits of the musicals we were doing. And, you know, it had sort of always waxed and waned my interest in the theater from a, a young age, but really sort of uh, recommitted to the theater by my junior and senior years. I was doing a lot, a lot, a lot of, you know, performing or um, producing or you know what have you by the end of my college time so, there so I didn't go to college for theater although I re-fell in love with it there so what so you were you pretty much did theater growing up yes the my parents were the type of parents who were very supportive of anything you wanted to do but you had mm-hmm. to do something so mm-hmm. you know I think I did baseball in second grade we all came to the conclusion that that was not really going to be my thing uh, and in third grade started acting a little bit in school plays, fourth and fifth grade did stage crew would then play in the pit. And I sort of like would always do something like that. I would play in the you know marching band and the jazz band. And then I would go back to being in stage crew. And then I would um, at some point, inevitably after two or three years of watching other people perform, I would sit there and think like, I think I could do that. That doesn't seem that difficult. And I went to a public school in upstate New York and there, you know, there were people who were interested in theater, but it wasn't like a performing school. So it was relatively easy to get involved if you wanted to be. So 
uh, when I would, when I would audition, it was, you know, I got lucky, I guess, but it was easy to get into shows, got involved and just fell in love with the environment. Yeah. I mean, so, so, cause we have similar backgrounds. Like my parents were very much like, you just got to do something. If you don't like it, you could try something new. They didn't force me to do anything, but um, you know, it went from T-ball to karate to theater. And this is all pretty early, right? This is, I was about eight years old when I started performing and, you know, I, I was hooked. I was hooked. But I think the difference in our stories is that like, you, it seems like you chose something more stable and lucrative to study in college or to try to, um, try to find your way in. And I, I went for, um, yes, I studied musical theater and, um, <laughs> you know, I don't regret a single thing. I loved it. But what made you choose the path of going to school and studying finance and then re-falling in love with theater? I, uh, I, w- I want to be careful about how I say this because I'm sure my parents will eventually find this and listen. Uh, the, I don't know that it was really an option for me to go to school for performance mm-hmm. or, or arts, really. I had very, very loosely toyed with the idea because I had had some friends who were going down this path of looking at music education as a, uh, professional track for myself. And I don't remember this specific conversation, but it, it was, it was clear that that was probably not going to be something that my parents were going to be overly supportive of me doing in college. Um, I think, you know, they had always had an attitude when I was young that, you know, unfortunately making money is the way of the world and you have to do it. And if you can find something that will be stable or, or lucrative or both, that will give you the building blocks to then one day do whatever you actually want to do. And I don't know how much I was fully, fully thinking of that when I was in college, but at some point when I was in finance and I was learning about, we would call it alternative investments, things like farmland or horses or, you know, stuff that old rich people do uh, <laughs> and invest in for fun. I stumbled upon investing in theater and film and really for the first time in part because I was reading Ken Davenport's blog, realized like, oh, there is sort of a path here where maybe you're, you know, behind the scenes or on the sidelines and you're helping budget or helping raise money or something. I didn't really know what producing was at the time, but it felt like if you're good with numbers and you're, you know, close to money or can ask people for money or have a lot of money yourself, uh, you can you can enter this field. And at, at some point, I kind of figured for myself, okay, I will stay in finance until I can build up a Rolodex of people that I could go to to talk about a show that we were working on. And then we will I will become a full-time producer. I, looking back, it's, you know, I, I can see the naivete in that. But I the way I thought it was going to work is like the shows we were working on in college would were good. And one day that show is going to go to Broadway. If only we can raise $15 million. And when I can raise $15 million, that's when that's going to happen. So at some point that, uh, that kind of became my goal. And in the first, you know, five, 10 years I was in finance that I was doing a lot of that. I was, you know, trying to either 
you know, invest a little bit of money myself or raise money. But really, I was producing like black box theater with my friends, mm -hmm. uh, doing a lot of fringe shows, you know, starting a theater festival and doing some scrappy, scrappy downtown theater. Mm -hmm. uh, did that for a while until it frankly just became untenable. That's it's very difficult to maintain that schedule uh, and be kind of two feet in both worlds like that. I don't know if that's naivete. I think that's just dreaming big. And I think that's innovation. Like, like that's how ideas happen. Maybe it's not exactly the way that it looked like, but I think it definitely informed your creative, you know, endeavors. Cause you're a producer, you have a production company, you um, you're the, you know, the founder of a, of, um, of a theater festival and you work for this incredible company that's responsible for, you know, broad, some of Broadway's coolest, you know, effects and, and, and moments. So I don't know if that thought process, uh, is naive. I think it keeps you creative and, um, inspired. There are things that I, you know, a, a, a big thing that I always say is that like, sometimes the stories that you want to tell sometimes the stories that you always know you're going to tell aren't necessarily the ways that you're going to be telling them so like I always knew I was going to be telling the story of Wicked because I love Wicked and I was in middle school when Wicked opened and uh, you know we were all obsessed and I was drawing Alphaba on the side of all of my school work and you know bending witch hats from you know Walmart and to make it look like Susan Hilferty's costume design and I always, I always knew I was going to be Alphaba. Like, like it wasn't even a question. I was like, I am Alphaba. And before my voice changed, I was singing Defying Gravity, like easy peasy. And, you know, listening to Eden's and Shoshana's riffs and trying to do them. And then my voice changed, but I was still like, I'm going to be Alphaba. It's fine. And then college happened. I was like, I still feel like I could be Alphaba. And then honestly, like it never occurred to me that there is a world in which that I might not be Elphaba until <laughs> like only a few weeks ago. And even though <laughs> in my like, I know it sounds so wild, but it's like, even in my like, okay, I, I know that I'm not going to be Elphaba right now if they continue to cast the way that they cast, right? I'm not going to be Elphaba. It's that, but that doesn't mean that I cannot be one day be Elphaba. And but in this moment, it was a really sobering thing because I was backstage of Wicked a few weeks ago and I was photographing Talia Suskauer in her last week of Elphaba and getting ready pre-show and then staying through Act 1. And uh, then I photographed her transformation into the Act 2 makeup and costume and then left right after. And um, the one of the makeup artists was like you want to see something cool and i was like yeah i do and it was right at uh i hope you're happy now that you're choosing this you too and she whisks me back um right in time off stage right for it's not her she has nothing to do with it i'm the one you want it's me it's me and then fly so i'm watching alpha fly off stage right and it was this of course emotional moment because it's one of the coolest effects ever and one of the most amazing stage moments in musical theater history, but it was right then and there where I realized I was like, oh, I'm here. I always knew I was going to be here, but it doesn't look like the way in which I thought I was going to be here. And that is a really like sobering artistic moment of, um, I, I never once was like, ah, you're so, you're, you, you, 
your head is in the clouds. You thought you're, it was like, no, that, that, that dream, that big dreaming got me, got me as close as I could to Elphaba in this moment. Like there's no one, there's no one else closer, you know, and that's pretty damn cool from daydreaming in middle school to, uh, to being on bra- being off stage bra- bra- of the Gershwin watching the green girl fly. I think that's pretty damn cool. So I think you did something right there. It's funny to hear you say that. I, I mean, a great plug for PRG special effects. Thank you for that. You're so uh, welcome. But, but thinking about like, we're probably uh, came up around the same time because I also saw wicked in middle school right after mm-hmm. it opened mm-hmm. and theater for me, wasn't really a huge part of my life yet it was just you know a reward for good report cards or things <laughs> like that probably saw one show every couple of years mm-hmm. and you know fell in love with the cast album loved that show and I don't know that I ever really saw myself being a part of like that show in particular but when Broadway started coming back right after COVID I not even for work just bought tickets and you know my fiance and I went to see the first performance back I think I felt like it was going to be a moment Mm. uh, and I didn't really know what I was expecting but first of all I mean it was a really really awesome experience to be a part of like the the standing ovations the the Mm. energy in there and then being in like the back of the rear mezzanine with all of our clients who also had the same idea but thinking the next day I felt like moved to call Ken Posner, the lighting designer and, and tell him like, I, I, you know, I haven't thought about this show in that way in so many years, but first of all, the lighting, you know, is from 2003, but it's still amazing. It's still awe inspiring. I wasn't in the center orchestra, but I saw kids down there who were, who were looking up and flying monkeys in the lights. Like what a, what an outstanding job mm-hmm. and how wild that you were, a young man when you did that show, like getting producers and directors and everyone to buy into that vision must've been kind of challenging and, you know, swap some war stories about the show. And when he hung up, I thought to myself, in what world, even five years ago or 10 or, or even longer, would you have expected that you would be in a place where you could call a Tony award-winning lighting designer, A, know, know the language and care, but also have that type of a relationship where you can, can call one of the key collaborators of a show that has, you know, really changed your life mm-hmm. and talk to them. And it's, it's just a very casual thing. So I, I, I have a lot of those little moments of, uh, you know, if, if five-year-old you or 10-year-old you could see you now kind of a thing, yeah. um, you know, they would, you, they would be impressed with where you are. Yeah. Um, you know, in this very apartment where I, where I photograph, where I, you know, do headshots and portraits and take care of artists that I grew up listening to on cast albums. They're now friends after coming into the space. And like Randy Graff is one of them. She's the original Fontaine in Les Mis and she won the Tony for city of angels. And she, um, we were talking about our little kid protecting our little kid. So mm. even that saying that what you're talking about, it's like, yeah, I grew up listening to the white album and being obsessed with Randy as Fontaine. And um, now, now she's telling me about that same kid that listened to her and protecting, you know, protecting him and making sure like the choices that I make today are, are, 
you know, are the right ones, the ones that live deep within us, because I think we forget that a lot. I think it doesn't matter if you're an actor, if you're a photographer, if you are in special effects, if you are producing um, a theater festival, I think we still always have to make choices that our little inner child is going to be okay with, because that's our, that's who we really are at the core. We're all just kids. Um, you know, I was editing my, my, the, um, episode that's going out on Monday and, you know, we were talking about just like, we're just theater kids. That's all we are. We're, we're just theater kids in, you know, and some of us are AARP members, you know what I mean? We've, we're, that's, that's what we want to do. We just want to put on theater and, and sometimes, um, ego gets in the way and sometimes the glitz and the glamour gets in the way, but ultimately, um, we have to listen to our inner child. Absolutely. I guess a, a play on that, but uh, I don't have many takeaways from my time in finance, but there there's one that I think of kind of frequently, which was sort of in very like banker mindset, like very black and white. It was, you know, in looking for career advice, uh, a few people that I would seek out for advice would tell me, you know, you need to think about what is your, they would call it a priority stack. Like what is the absolute highest thing that's most important to you? And it's not necessarily in that world, things like, well, you know, I, I want to be vice president by the time I'm whatever, but rather like, is it important to you to create a space for yourself to have a family or to, you want to travel or whatever the case may be, but you know, your career will take a lot of twists and turns, but use that almost as a, a North star. And I think it's, it, it's kind of similar to that because your inner child may have known those priorities very mm -hmm. clearly when they were young. And maybe you, you think differently about them as you get older. But for me, I'm, I know that at my core, I'm just very, very motivated by community. Mm -hmm. And what drew me into the theater and a lot of the decisions I've made in theater once I got there was, about creating community and creating spaces for artists to do work, uh, you know, watering each other's gardens kind of thing. And I find that whether I was doing, you know, college theater just for fun, or we were doing our little fringe shows or the theater festival, or even what the work I do now at PRG, what I find most fulfilling is when you're, you feel like you're able to help your friends or that you're, you're creating that community or giving back to it, or frankly, receiving from it. And, uh, I think that was that was an important takeaway for me that that lesson that it sometimes it is just very clear it is very black and white what is the number one thing that motivates you and it might not be you know prestige or money or fame or whatever but it could be as simple as like you know I I want to like working with the people I'm I'm with it's good enough you know we we're allowed to do certain things because of you know what we want and that's something I talk about a lot is the why is why are, why do you do what you do? And um, in my book that just came out, how to be a multi-hyphenate in the theater business, you know, it's the first chapter. It's the first thing that you talk about because it's the first thing that you should ask yourself. It's um, why, why am I a photographer? Why am I an actor? Why am I a podcaster? Why am I all of these different things? And I think the second, you know, that you can't really explain it clearly you have to sort of 
revisit it and it's okay. It's like, you know, I have a very specific exercise that I do with when I'm teaching workshops that I do with the, about the why. And um, there's some people that are, you know, really great at it. And some people that it, they've never asked themselves this before. So they really struggle with it. Um, or they know that they don't want to do it and they're trying to, you know, bullshit their way through the exercise because they actually don't want to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, I always say just as, just as soon as you figure out why you're doing something, um, that answer is probably going to change because life, life happens, life changes, life affects what we do and who we are. And, you know, the pandemic was that for me, I was a COVID, I am a COVID long hauler. I had COVID pretty bad in March and it affects every day. You know, it affects, it informs what I do. Um, that wasn't a part of my why before because it didn't exist. And now I live with it every day. So, um, you know, it, it, it's it, taking stock and understanding like what is important um, is really important. <laughs> yeah. I, we did a very similar exercise with my team when we were all, uh, we were all in Las Vegas for a conference and I didn't necessarily put it under the same banner as like start with why, but you know, it's a similar concept. Like mm -hmm. why any of us have, uh, you know, problem solving skills, a, a technical mindset, generally good with people. Like those skills are pretty deployable in a lot of different areas. So why are you working here? Because there's a lot of there's a lot of places you could go and make more money. There's a lot of places you could go and work less hours. You know, what keeps you here? And we started writing them all down like a little word wall. And I was looking for it as you were bringing that up. And some of the answers we got were really fun. Uh, one that I really loved was, you know, being a part of everyone's Super Bowl. Mm. You know, whether you're doing an off-Broadway show or, or the biggest Broadway or a tour or, you know, college theater, that's someone's like biggest thing. And getting to be a, a part of that is really fun. You know, being part of uh, making the biggest and most exciting productions in the world or being a part of the cultural change that happens, uh, having a societal impact, bring ideas to life. I mean, it's exciting to, to, to remind yourself sometimes why you're doing it because sometimes in your day-to-day, -day, it's very easy to just think like, oh gosh, I got to call that person back. I really don't want to. I, I oh, I, you know, they... I never like working with them and I, now I need to do this thing. Uh, but sometimes it's nice to, to visualize that and, and kind of have it up to remind yourself like, okay, even on its worst days, I still get to do some of these things. And that's why, that's why we stay in it. That's so awesome. Um, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to talk about the things that you actually get to do. Okay. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And we're back. <laughs> it always makes me giggle because I'm always like, oh, we're going to take a quick break. And then we recording literally look at each other awkwardly for like three seconds. And then I say, we're back. So that's what you listeners here um that's what that's what you miss in the magic of editing as you're hearing from our sponsors with broadway podcast network but you know you're under multi-hyphenate and let's talk about what a multi-hyphenate is to you so what what's a multi-hyphenate to you it's a good question because i think the answer for me will have changed like three times by the time like i get through the end of this week um (laughs) I think, you know, most broadly and most simply, it's just someone who wears a lot of different hats Mm -hmm. or someone that maybe through someone else's lens would be someone that you would go to to talk about some like more than one thing Mm -hmm. with. Like, uh, I, I don't know, I have hobbies, of course, but like no one in the theater industry is calling me to talk about my views of like the New York Islanders starting lineup. So like probably not a multi-hyphenate for that reason, but when someone will reach out to me either in my job at PRG or my work with Fortress or just an artist that I used to work with in Corkscrew thinking about like, what is my, what's the development path for the show look like? I think it's the ability to, you know, navigate those conversations and, you know, because I'm motivated by community and helping friends, like trying to be able to be helpful. Um, and a lot of times those asks don't come in, in one place cleanly. Like it may be coming into me via someone who knew me as a co-producer or a generative artist or a musician is asking me about like, I've got this idea and I think it's going to do this, but I need to find a venue. And then I'm kind of putting on my, you know, black box theater producing hat of like, okay, I actually, no, don't that, that's a tough venue to work, but this one's great. And this one's new. I don't know it yet. Or, you know, whatever the case may be. So I guess a long way of answering the question, but uh, someone who has a degree of um, knowledge and like active interest, you know, with a driving ambition towards something. Yeah. was that good? No, I'm obsessed <laughs> with that. I, I also love listening to your sort of your business brain because, you know, um, I, I'm going to be bold and say this. Not many artists um, love tapping into their business brain, you know, and I, th- I whether or not it just it's a side that they've never tapped into or they are scared to or they don't or they sort of lack that perspective. I mean, it's it's really important more than ever now today that an artist taps into that. And so hearing you sort of talk about that in the way that you did is with clarity is really important for this podcast because we have guests that come on that are like, you know, very spiritual about their art and very spiritual about multi-hyphenating, but really understanding, and that's what I try to share in my book, the step-by-step of this process that it is a that is the only lucrative form to me of theater making is multi-hyphenating because there's um 
there's actually step-by-step processes to take. And uh, I think it equals, you know, a holistic artistry that you can sell, that is yours, that is marketable, and therefore garners an income. And, you know, what what I really like what you said about... um, hobbies is that like just because you have hobbies does not make you a multi-hyphenate it makes you maybe multi-talented or it makes you multi-faceted but it doesn't make you multi-hyphenated because for me the the main thing that multi-hyphenates need is the cross-pollinating with the with their proficiencies and um you know I use the example of actor roller skater and knitter and like it's up to you as an artist if you want to like justify that but Really, you know, it's it's kind of uh, unless you're really, really, you know, are dedicated to this. It's it's hard to sort of join those hyphens to make them cross pollinate. Um, But actor, photographer, producer, writer, podcaster, educator, you know, something like me or like what Mel Brooks does, actor, director, producer, writer. Those are those are easily um, hyphenated because of the cross pollinating and um, yeah, multi hyphenates are allowed to have hobbies, but that doesn't make them more of a multi hyphenate than anyone else. Like we should have hobbies to like to just enjoy to take the stress off, but also sometimes those skills affect the hyphens, but we don't make them a hyphen. Like with photo editing, right? Like. I'm a photographer and I'm a headshot photographer and I have to have the skill of, of Photoshop of, you know, uh, of some sort of computer um, uh, wherewithal, but that does, I don't say that I'm a graphic designer. I just have the skill set of doing that. I don't, I don't say that I'm going to make people's, you know, uh, sets or graph, you know what I mean? It's, it's understanding where our skill sets lie in terms of proficiencies um, is a really key part of multi-hyphenating, which is what you just said. And I really love that. I, I think that you can build on proficiencies to make you, to make oneself like the expert in a certain number of things. Uh, I hate to bring up the second piece of advice that I got in finance that has stuck with me because I really only thought there was one, but I remember when I was trying to break into finance and I met with a trader like on a trading desk and I said like how do I convince someone in in HR or someone who's recruiting or you know whoever that like I want to do this when you know everyone there's a lot of other people who want to do this too and they said to me be as specific as humanly possible don't tell someone that you want to be a trader Tell them that you want to be the oil and gas exploration, large cap, single name, U.S. equity derivatives trader. Because then the one time a year that that position comes up, people will remember, oh, that was that one person who wanted to do that exact thing. We should call them. And I think part of being a multi-hyphenate and how you've, you've kind of articulated I think what I was trying to say but much better <laughs> was like when you're when the things that you're proficient in start to uh, kind of create a flywheel around yourself like they all build on each other and feed each other you could end up in a place I think relatively quickly where you, okay am I the best 
was I ever the best black box producer of all time? No, of course not. Was I ever like the best fundraiser? No. Was I the best budgeter? No. Did I create the best rooms for us to work in? No, but maybe there was something in that of being able to do a lot of those things that when an artist had an idea and was looking for someone who has done these types of shows before, knows how to budget it, I don't have to worry about fundraising because they're doing it, blah, 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 blah. You're on a relatively short list of people that they would reach out to. Uh, and I think if you can figure that out, that's probably the best chance any of us have at like success uh, or at least stability. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love that you said that. Um, the specificity thing, I, I feel like a lot of people are really terrified of it. Um, cause I think people don't want to, uh, they don't want to, um, uh, eliminate other opportunities. They want to remain open and they want to remain, um, <laughs> they want to remain as generic as possible, but generic being generic is hard, is hurtful and being non-specific is hurtful. So when people come into my headshot sessions, right in my studio, I go, we need specific stuff so that you can get in front of the right projects that you want to tell. Otherwise, you're going to get lost in the shuffle. The headshots that work are the headshots that have specific points of views. That's why those people get more auditions. So like my manager um, is also an actor, which is pretty, pretty rad. And um, since she shot with me uh, uh, within um, two weeks of using those headshots, they literally were like, I have been called in for four different projects mm -hmm. by three different casting directors um, and already booked a print gig. And that was within just two weeks of using the photos. Um, so, and that is because we went in a very, very, very specific route. Michael Kushner is very, very specific in what he does. Uh, Mel Brooks is very specific in what he does. Adina Menzel is very specific in what she does. Um, Issa Rae is very specific in what she does. Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, there's so many people that the reason why they are centered is because multi their multi-hyphenate approach is specific enough. And I always talk about this, you know, being multi-hyphenate, being a multi-hyphenate is usually um, someone that is from a marginalized community because our stories are um, not told and we are the ones that have to step forward and tell them. Um, but in doing so, because they are our experiences, they are specific. Therefore, multi-hyphenates by nature, I think, get a much more personal and specific career than someone that isn't a multi-hyphenate. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And and the the careers that I really admire, I think are people who who probably wouldn't have even used multi-hyphenate in that exact language, mm -hmm. you know, people who were 20, 30 years ahead of me. Mm -hmm. But the careers I admire are the ones where either, you know, there were actual roadblocks or, you know, structural impediments to them getting what they wanted, or it just, you know, didn't quite happen for them as quickly as they would have liked. And they were able to carve out a career by sort of doing things that no one else would have maybe ever thought was a job. Mm -hmm. um, I think like the internet did that for, or opened that up for a lot of people, um, mm -hmm. not theater or arts related necessarily, but one of my favorite websites, The Points Guy, 
was a, a former HR, HR guy for a bank who said, I love doing all this like gamification with the Delta miles and the credit card points and the everything. And I'm just going to start a blog that is helping people figure out, you know, don't buy groceries on that card, buy it on this one. And this one has a better sign up bonus. And right now there's a weird sale with Aer Lingus that can get you to Ireland. I read that guy religiously when I was in finance. And I just think like, now there's a guy who was in a job and he's like, yeah, this is fine. This isn't really what I like, but what I love and what I get like fired up about is this thing. And he had, you know, the conviction and the drive and, you know, the, that idea, I think, you know, he was still in his old job at first when he started it, but eventually to say like, no, I can, I can do this full time. I'm going to be the best at that thing, mm-hmm. that hyper, hyper specific thing that I think at the time there weren't many other people doing and like has a very successful company right now. Um, I need to check out the website because that sounds amazing. And I love my Delta uh, MX um, credit card. It is Mm, we love it. Um, so you are balancing three different jobs right now. And you are at PRG, which is Production Resource Group. You own and manage Fortress Productions, and you were the founding executive director of the Corkscrew Theater Festival. Tell me what all of those experiences are. And I want to know about how they feed each other, just like the multi-hyphenate experience, how they affect each other and, um, and why you, uh, why you invested in that, whether or not that was monetarily or, um, sweat equity or, you know, energy. I, I tell, tell us more. Sure. So maybe I'll start with the timeline for myself, although this is not the timeline like in the world. PRG mm-hmm. started many, many years ago when Phantom of the Opera opened and, and even before that. So that was first teleologically. But for me, um, Fortress Productions, when it first started, was sort of just like, you know, not even an LLC. It was just a name that I used to open up a checking account and get a credit card and have a website. When I was doing my second fringe theater festival show in New York. And frankly, this is so silly in retrospect to think about, but I kind of only created it because there was a whiteboard outside the theater that had like the information about the show. And at the top, it said, you know, producer. And I felt silly putting my own name on it. So I said, like, I should make something up to, to put there. Um, but from there, it sort of became at least maybe just more of a mindset or, or more of a philosophy. Like, I, I never really had any sort of, like, full-time staff. It was always show-specific. When I started doing more and more black box shows with my friends, it at least gave me, like, you know, a, a MailChimp account with people's emails that you would blast things out to. And a Rolodex of people that you're talking to. And I think eventually at least it gave me the confidence to reach out to people proactively that I didn't know and say, like, I am a producer and I'm not doing any shows you've ever heard about, but I am producing and I'm on a path and I want to meet with you to talk about whatever the heck I thought I was talking about at the time. So I, that happened in 2015, summer 2015, I was working in finance at the time and really for the better part of three, four years was doing both finance and fortress, like with full gusto and energy at the same time. And it was a lot of, 
you know, sneaking away from work to go load in or tour a theater or have a meeting or whatever, um, by and large working at, you know, in finance until seven, eight o'clock and then trying to get myself to a, a theater where we're working on shows. The, at some point I started to think that my path, if I wanted to become a Broadway producer, which at the time I thought I did, that I would need to start dipping my toes in the water of either investing in shows or, you know, co-producing and raising money for them. And I started doing that with like comically small dollar amounts that I don't know. I got lucky. Like if anyone out there is trying to do that, just, just ask a producer if you can invest $2,500 in their show, $5,000 in their show. Like it, it may not seem like a lot to them, but someone might be charmed by your go get them attitude and, you know, eagerness to learn. And maybe they'll say yes. So I was doing a little bit of that in addition to the black box producing. And at some point I thought, there maybe is like too much under this banner and that it might be worthwhile to sort of structure the commercial, commercial things I'm doing or the things that are aimed commercially, but might not be commercial right now with the things that really, that's not the goal here. It's, it's artistic development or it's people development or it's a, you know, public arts project or whatever. So about at that same time, I had a number of friends who were also producing fringe shows. We had done like two or three of them at that point, And we started to get frustrated with, it just didn't feel like the environment to put up your best work. I remember thinking like by hook or by crook, I have found the email addresses to all of these producers and all of these critics. And I am inviting, you know, Ben Brantley to see like Sylvia Plath, the musical. And I, I just didn't feel like it was a spot that I could put up our best work. You have 15 minutes to load in and load out. You don't have a lot of control over your process or your story. It's like, a, it's, it's mayhem. And in talking with other friends, they had similar experiences. And we thought, how hard could it be? Which is like, <laughs> if I get that printed as a banner, I think that that's going to be on my tombstone. How hard could it be? Uh, to to like start a theater festival, let's just rent a theater for a month and you take the first week and I'll take the second and you know, you'll take the third and eventually putting more structure that we came up with the, the Corkscrew Theater Festival. And the idea being, we wanted it to be as artist friendly and as artist forward of a place to do work at a low to the ground level as possible. So we made sure that we didn't have application fees. There was no participation fee. We were giving you a budget for sets. It was not much, but it, we gave you something. And we thought we were just gonna try to fund the whole thing really with you know, uh, a, a small number of large donations from uh, people who have vested interests in the arts in New York City. A lot of cold emails later, we were able to raise $20,000 our first year. And then that grew up to be well into six figures by our by our fourth year. Um, COVID put the, a lot of those plans on hold and uh, more or less corkscrew as it, as it existed in the past is no longer, although a lot of us are kind of uh, pushing on in our own way in different, in different areas. But uh, for a while, that was the division in my head where Fortress was my commercial interests and, you know, mass market, if you want to think of it that way, theater interests. And then Corkscrew was where 
I tried to incubate as many artists that, you know, we liked working with or were telling stories that we thought were interesting or, um, you know, we, whose careers we wanted to support. And so had, you know, four or five strong years there and really proud of the work we did there. Uh, PRG kind of came in the middle of corkscrew, really, because up until I needed to soup to nuts produce my own thing, like not in someone else's house that has equipment or a festival that kind of has confines to it. When we rented a theater by ourselves and we needed some equipment, we learned about PRG at that point kind of for the first time. And I had, you know, a friend of a friend who was connected to someone who knew someone at PRG. And I thought if I can get a meeting with them, and maybe I'll get them to donate equipment to my theater festival. And, you know, managed to meet that person, told them a little bit about my interest in producing commercial theater. And that turned into, okay, you really should meet Jerry, who turned out to be Jerry Harris, who was the founder and a, a CEO at the time of PRG. He's now our executive chairman. And my first meeting with him, I went in thinking, I got to tell you about my theater festival so I can get like two moving lights out of you. And then it turned into, you know, do you have a resume and are you good with PowerPoint and Excel? <laughs> and I didn't even know companies like PRG really existed. And it turned out they were going through a merger and an integration of another large company that they had acquired or were in the process of acquiring. And they really needed we would call it corporate development, but like an internal banker. And that's how I got introduced to PRG. I did that role for the better part of three years. Wow. It was sort of like half corporate development, mergers, acquisitions, and half chief of staff to the CEO. Learned a lot about that world. And it's not just theater. I mean, theater's a, frankly, a relatively small component of what we do at PRG. It was the foundation of the company, but now we've gone on to be in 15 countries and at, at its height, 3,200 full-time employees and 10,000 freelancers. And we're in concert touring and corporate events and wow. the Super Bowl and the Summer Olympics all the way down to Corkscrew Theater Festival getting two free lights because I did take that job and I got the two free lights out of it. Um, and more. <laughs> and, and, and more, yes, that is true over, over the years for sure. So yeah, that, that happened for about three years until COVID and then during COVID, the founder uh, um, of our theater division, Darren Deverna, passed away. At first, I started kind of popping into that office to more or less look after it. And then at some point, officially uh, became the vice president of our, of our theater business. So within PRG, that's one of our markets. Uh, it's primarily headquartered in New York. And in that, it's about 225 full-time people between lighting, audio, video, scenery automation uh and two of our shops we have our scenic shop in new windsor new york founded by fred gallo and our lighting audio video shop in secaucus new jersey and that's where i spend the bulk of my time so that's definitely taken the folk most of my focus these days but i still motivated again by community i will still sign up to help friends raise money for a show or sign on as a co-producer when it's you know, friends or, or peers that I feel like we came up together in the business. What did you wanting say to your, help them out? What did you say your name was again? 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, and my email is <laughs> I know where to find you. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's incredible. Um, you said something that really, uh, really excited me, and that was when you were talking about when you were sort of like, like doing the overall arc of what your career is, and that's your production company is you know the overarching one, and then the theater festival falls under. It's like I. I see it that way as well. Like Michael Kushner photography is pretty much my like main entity and then everything else falls under it. Like Dear Multi-Hyphenate is probably like, a, it's like 1.5, you know what I mean? It's like a one and a half because it it is becoming its own sort of a thing because it doesn't have anything to do with my photography, but like it, everything was born out of Michael Kushner photography. It is what I call my dominant proficiency. Like hmm. there, it is the proficiency that like lets everything happen because it's, you know, where I make my money, most of my money, where uh, it, I do most of my networking, my net weaving, like it's where a lot of people know me from. So it allows me a lot more freedom because um, it's provided me with a lot of stuff. So it has me, it has fed my producing it has um fed my podcasting it has fed my teaching it has fed my you know my acting um it's sort of my dominant proficiency it allows me to sort of exist more freely as a multi-hyphenate which is basically what you're saying and um proving my point as to why people should buy my book I'll get my copy right (laughs) after this right after we get off the phone you know what's so interesting is that like I look at our artistry and I look at the way that we communicate with the world. And, and I think with, with my, with my, um, the proficiencies that I have in the projects that I work on, there's maybe a clearer way to delineate a workflow and go, all right, from eight to nine in the morning, I'm doing this. And then from nine in the morning to 10, I'm doing this. And then I'm having, you know, a little downtime there and then, you know, 11 to 12 and then 12, my client, you know, but I feel like there's a lot more room to bleed in each other with the projects that you do. So how do you as an artist sort of establish a healthier workflow for yourself and establish those boundaries within your schedule? That way you can like do your hobbies that don't have anything to do with your work and like everything is clear cut and one thing doesn't bleed into the other and you know, all that stuff. Yeah, I guess whenever I figure that out, I'll come back on the podcast and I'll let you know. <laughs> I don't know. That's that's frankly, I think where I am in my career right now, that's it is a challenging question to answer because you know, I only started with the theater division of PRG in COVID. And so even though in my head that's been three years, you know well, a year and a half of that, there wasn't much going on. Mm -hmm. And so people were still approaching me either as like the corporate finance person at PRG or as a, Hey, I've got an idea. Let's work through how we might produce it. What it might, you know, what it might look like now, I think more and more, I mean, PRG is a full-time job. So it is like, that is, um, that is the primary thing. That's the primary proficiency in a way, but the, the thing that I, I believe makes me stand out in my job compared to some of our competitors is that a lot of people within PRG, you know, all the way up to our founder, have, have an entrepreneurial spirit in general, but also 
have produced theater and therefore kind of have an understanding of what it takes to get things done, either logistically, financially, what have you, that a lot of people will call us, my bosses, people I work with, myself, to talk through the genesis of an idea. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm thinking of taking this thing and even though it might not make any sense, I want to try to put it on tour first. And if it works, get it to Broadway and then maybe get a stream of it and blah, blah, blah. Does this make sense? And because of how many different businesses or industries PRG touches, I think we're kind of able to, oh, okay, let's dust off the, uh, the touring attraction budgets and see if this makes sense. Or if you want to one day land on Broadway, how do we minimize your downtime so that you can, you know, X, Y, Z. So even though more and more, I think people are seeing my proficiency as the technical theater, it's the, the, the leads, if you will, kind of come in more from producers or general managers reaching out proactively or, or us reaching out proactively to try to like work through a problem, knowing that we have been on both sides of it, mm-hmm. uh, have been on the money raising side, have been on the I'm on the ground and the budget was already set by someone who isn't me and I just got to make this work or, you know, a, a, as a technical solution provider. Um, so I have, you know, three email servers up at all times Mm -hmm. uh i apologize if i missed anyone's text messages but it it does feel like they the things come in from a little little all over i've been trying more and more when you think about like being protective of your time so that you can do your work uh at, at its highest level i've been trying to be a little bit more protective about um my time more broadly but how that looks is really just being transparent with people about how I think I could be useful or trying to sense the conversation someone's interested in having. Like if someone reaches out to me via my website or, you know, via Corkscrew's website and says, you know, I've got this thing, it's just a script, but I'd love you to read it. And I think, you know, I'd love to have a conversation about it. I'll, I'll more often than not right now at this stage of my career, probably reach out and say, you know, I'm, I, I don't really have the, the capacity these days to be a full lead producer and, and, you know, be in there with you as a generative artist. The, the, maybe the most useful uh, time for us to chat is if you get to this stage and, th- and then I think I could be really helpful. And I, it eats at me because I, I just, I'm such a people pleaser by like my nature, but I, I hope that that is respectful of everyone's time, but ultimately doesn't say like, I'm not interested in working with you because that's not the case, but it's just, you know, I I could probably with an abundance of time and abundance of resources and abundance of energy, help you get your script that is in draft form to a workshop, to a stage production, but it would really take me away from the other things I'm doing. And also maybe the person who you need most is like the person who, who is as hungry as you are and at your level that you'll be building something together and be partners for the next 30 years, like, Mm -hmm. you know, invest in those relationships. Um, So sometimes I'll give the advice, like, especially to young producers, what you should be doing right now is producing. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if it's good. It doesn't matter like how commercial it is. It doesn't like, 
start learning how to produce what you will only learn by producing. And you'll learn what types of rooms you like being in and which ones you don't and which relationships you cherish, artists you want to keep your eye on. And like, that's what's going to make you a good producer. Not like, I've got this one show, my view at least, I've got this one show and it's, I'm sure that it's going to Broadway. And what I need is for you, person on the other end of this email to like, give me some money or, uh, you know, advocate for me to get a theater or give me some gear or whatever the, the ask ultimately is. Yeah. Um, uh, producing is probably the most, it, it's, it's the, it's the most required thing in our industry, but it's the hardest thing to learn or teach, you know, cause it's like, what does a producer do? Well, a producer does A, B, C, D. There's so many things, but you can't really figure it out until you don't really know what that means. You can't put a face to the problem until you're facing it until you're like, Oh, okay. You know, some equipment malfunctions or an actor gets sick or, um, uh, you know, uh, something happens to the union. Like there's a million things like, you, you know, that are, that, affect producing but you're right you have to just produce stuff even if it's a five minute short even if it's a a table read if even if it's you know if you start as a table read and then you do um a staged reading and then you go into you know a 29 hour reading you know equity reading like it, even if you start small and work your way big to something like just start doing it i i i completely agree with you in that aspect, but, you know, you said something before that was really great. And it's like, I, some, a boundary that I put in between myself and my friends, even if they are like my best friends in the world and they're texting me being like, ah, I need new pictures. I go, I love you. Yeah, absolutely. You got to email me or it's not going to happen because like I'm booked two months in advance in the studio. Right. And it's like, I, you, you, you are not going to just because you're my best friend doesn't mean that you're going to get, um, you know, on the books just because you text me. I don't even deal, I don't even do it my schedule. So like, not only do I have to like communicate that with my business manager, but like, I, if that's one less thing I can do, that would be really helpful. You know what I mean? Like putting the fat in our own life, you know, in the day to day, um, activities uh you know what i mean it's really helpful for us to be able to function because we are like people aren't like the the people the naysayers about multi-hyphenates they're usually like wow you have a lot you're really like juggling a lot of stuff it's like yeah we are juggling a lot of stuff but we're not messes about it like we are we're functional and we have a really strong you know um uh, uh we have a really strong list and and uh uh, organized thought process and, and way of communicating and workflow, but things can mess it up. We just are aware enough to put into place the, the actions that prevent that. I'm the first to admit I have so much going on, but how lucky am I to be able to commit to all of this stuff and have the workflow for that and be able to raise my puppy and plan a wedding and, you know, and renovate a house, which is what we're doing on top of all of this work stuff. So like, you know, something's working there, you know, <laughs> something yeah. is working. Well, Not and you know what, I think back to when, when Corkscrew was in like, you know, pre-pandemic, it's, it's most robust form, you know, by the second year, I kind of had figured out for myself, like, 
oh, you just can't really make that many social commitments the month that you're up. And you will be really transparent with friends that if they want to see you, they got to come see a show and then you'll go out afterwards. But if they're not coming to the theater, they're just probably not going to see you. And it's not because you don't love them, but that's for you to make this work. That's what that looks like. And I think my brain's always been wired a bit in like, I definitely am like a creature of momentum. So it's a bit like all or nothing. I, I find it difficult to like be half in and half out of something. So like when you're in producing mode, like that is what you're, that's what you're doing. And when you're, you know, at work, you know, for me that my full-time gig, like that's what you're doing. Um, and to juggle, that does take a lot of like, okay, it is, you know, 7 PM. And now I'm going to put on my, this other hat that I'm focusing on. And these things definitely, I don't mean to say that, you know, to contradict what we were saying earlier about them feeding each other, but you you do need to be deliberate about your time because otherwise it just won't happen or, or it'll happen. It'll be sloppy. And then people won't want to work with you going forward. Absolutely. The, the cross pollinating isn't, um, isn't sloppy. It's deliberate. The cross pollinating uh, is part of the strategy. So, you know, I love that you said that, that you have to be deliberate with what you are cross pollinating. And it's absolutely true. And Alex, I loved this conversation today. You're incredible. And is there anything that you that you have happening that we should look out for, follow you on Instagram or social media for to keep, you know, to be in the know of that information? Listen, I'll take all the Instagram followers. That's like, that just feeds me. Um, I'm currently a co-producer on Parade with a lot of close friends. I love that show the cast album I've probably listened to the original like hundreds and hundreds of times it was one of the first songs I sang in like acapella in high school and all that. Yeah. Um, you see, I used to use the old red Hills of home as an audition song in college. Yeah. In fact, um, so that's running a uh, limited run 24 weeks uh, total. And we are about a month and a half in. So definitely see that just got great reviews and uh, Ben Platt's obviously a star. Michaela diamond took my breath away really definitely go see that and not a show that I'm actually involved with, but I just saw dark disabled stories at the public and Ryan is a lovely, lovely artist and a, and a good friend and people need to rush to see that. I am dying to figure out if that show like has a life beyond this because I just, I like so much of it resonated with me. I love it dearly. And just, just a plug for a friend, just go see the show. It's great. Yeah. Ryan's incredible. And you are incredible. And um, where can we follow you on social media? I'm at A.R. Donnelly, D-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y. I think there's an underscore at the end on Instagram. That's probably where I'm most active. Um, and I will reply to every person's individual story as if it was a DM sent directly to me if it's about theater. So oh my just, God. Be, I, just be warned about that. <laughs> I love that. And I do the same thing. But you are amazing. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please like, subscribe, comment. Do all that good stuff. Follow on Instagram at Dear Multi-Hyphenate or at the Michael Kushner. And, uh, you know, go see some Broadway shows and go see Parade. Go see Parade. Hey. 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.